With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. For one more beer for me, exile means quality, so savagely. Podcast. I'm John Miller, along with Steve Dace. We will talk this week about Iowa's decisive victory over the Indiana Hoosiers in a game that uh, I certainly don't mind admitting I got completely wrong as it relates to what took place based upon my uh, concerns going into it, Steve. I've talked quite a bit and I've watched it twice and have some more thoughts as well, but I'll let you go ahead and uh, begin with what you saw from Iowa on Saturday. What I saw, John, is what the analytics said we should see. And it's rare in this day and age there's a huge disconnect between betting markets and analytics because math is driving those more than feel anymore. And um, and I think the change is um, this is a different Iowa offense than what we're used to seeing. It, it's probably the first time since 04 with Drew Tate that we've watched Iowa throw to set up the run, basically. Um, and I think the markets just kind of haven't caught up to that. And, and you know, this has been a weird year anyway where the late money on a team was almost always, on an annual basis, is almost always right on the money because those are always your sharpest betters. This year, there. This year, there's been numerous games where late money has poured in, and that team not only didn't cover but lost straight up. There's been several examples with Iowa this year. I can remember. I think at least three games, maybe four, where the late money was opposite the Hawkeyes and was on the wrong side. And so I think the 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 handicapping markets haven't caught up to the fact this might this is a more this this is a more explosive Iowa offense or let me let me maybe put it another way it's more willing to be um, an explosive Iowa offense it's more accepting of the realities uh, that it may not have the dominant offensive line I mean they're still pretty good but it, it may not just be able to line up in road great teams as it would prefer to do. And maybe we're seeing now for the first time, I think really some of Brian Ferentz's influence where maybe a previous offensive coordinator wasn't going to get the old ball coach there to accept certain realities, but uh, maybe the one with the right uh, DNA membership card has a little bit uh, more leeway where some of that is concerned. And so I think the markets kind of expect Iowa to play most of these games, 17, 10 and, and are jumping all over underdogs in these Iowa games, and it's not really working out that way. 
with the one exception was the Iowa State game. And I think we're learning right now, Iowa State's a pretty good football team. So I think that's what stuck out to me the most because the analytics said that the game should be what it was, that, that Indiana really had not much of a chance, that Iowa was really better at every key facet and it played a much tougher schedule. And, and that's what we actually saw in live action on Saturday. Yeah, I, I think your your points about the offense. Now, we saw Iowa have a um, a really explosive op- offensive performance last year against Ohio State, and they unleashed the dual tight end threat that they have and took advantage of the mismatches that they had, only to see that go back into the bottle. But what we've begun to see the last couple of weeks, and especially on display Saturday, is Iowa has the best tight end tandem in the nation, And that's one thing. But using them effectively is another. They use them effectively on Saturday. Iowa pulling an absolute Iowa thing where both tight ends have over 100 yards receiving in the same game. And I I talked about this in the Instant Reaction podcast and tweeted about it some as well. We also talked at great lengths about this in the summertime. But so oftentimes the summertime pontificating is disconnected from what we actually see play out. We've sat there and said in past years, man, Iowa has a lot of weapons on offense only to get to a season and they just don't seem to utilize them or or schematically doesn't get them on the field. But this year, one of the constant things we said in the out of season was that Iowa's depth and playmakers that they had at the tight end position. And you will remember me telling you that I felt TJ Hawkinson would have the better year statistically. Um, Iowa has an opportunity to use the same personnel package, leave the same personnel package on the field 60, 70 percent of the snaps because they can run power out of 22. Certainly 22, you're going to run power, give a power look or 21, which means the, the first number is the number of tight ends on the field. The second number is the number of running backs on the field. So 22 for Iowa is going to be a fullback, a tailback, two tights. 21 is going to be two tight ends, one running back, and a couple of receivers. But when you can when you can leave those guys in either as blockers or as weapons in the passing game, what do you do if you're a defense? Well, do you try to blitz like Indiana did on a lot of their snaps, on a high percentage of their snaps? Well, if you do, it means Noah Fant is going to be lined up with Indiana's number 42, who's a linebacker, and it's get even and leave him time as Noah has a burst from about the 10-yard line of the end zone to go catch that perfectly thrown pass from Nate Stanley, or the number of times TJ Hawkinson was in single coverage, or if you decide not to blitz, if you decide just to sit back in the zone base and, and make Nate Stanley beat you down the field the way Norm Parker always tried to make opposing quarterbacks beat Iowa with seven, eight, nine, 10 play, play drives on the field, that means you better have some lead in your trunk at the line of scrimmage to hold up against Iowa's offensive line. And oh, by the way, this game, more so than even the Minnesota game, the Iowa is trending more and more away from their outside zone, running more inside zone, running more ISO trap gap style blocking on the inside to much success. I really, I'm, I'm not trying to make these guys out like the 1994 Penn State and any line offense, but how do you try to stop them? Because I don't think you can take away both things, at least the way that Nate Stanley's been playing as of late. I think that's really good analysis. I mean, really, the best antidote to stopping any offense, as we saw with you know two Super Bowls with the Giants, 
pretty offensively challenged and, and beat historically great Patriot teams both times the same way, uh, which is if, if you can pressure with a front four, a, a lot of those things um, become vastly irrelevant. And right now, Iowa hasn't played a team on their schedule that has that kind of talent uh, in its defensive front. And, and I don't know that you will play a team that has that kind of talent in its defensive front. Uh, I think, I think Penn state has good athletes, but you know, I, I don't think that there's necessarily anybody coming off the edge right now that you're like, Oh man, we got to double team that guy, you know? So, um, because th- th- if you've got a blitz to get pressure consistently, that's where those tight ends really kill you. And it goes back to something I remember Nick Saban saying years ago that he would much rather defend a great in college football. He would much rather scheme to shut down an all American receiver than an all American tight end because the number one weakness of collegiate linebackers is covering in space. And when you look at the two tight end package that Iowa puts on the field right now, um, frankly, I think it's kind of a collegiate version of what the Patriots had years ago when uh, Gronk was just getting in his prime Aaron Hernandez before obviously, you know, his problems, but when they had those two tight ends on the field and the way that they could get vertical and, and the athleticism they had where if you blitzed, they had enough quickness that they could chip that guy to give the quarterback an extra half second on their way out to a route and then still get vertical, you know, at least eight, 10, 15 yards past the line of scrimmage. I mean, that's just wicked difficult to stop, man. When they can pull both of those things off, when they can, they can give you a chip assist in the pass pro on their way out to their route. Um, and, and you saw how many games uh, the Patriots won with that two tight end package. And of course you've got, two guys in the Ferences that are uh, Belichickian disciples and Iowa is running something similar right now. I mean, I, I can't remember a game in college football and, you know, I'm kind of an idiot savant at this, as you know, I, I can't remember a game in college football in, in recent memory where two tight ends combined on the same team for over 200 yards receiving. I, I just, I mean, you don't see that unless you're running an air raid or, run and shoot amongst two receivers typically in a college football game, let alone two tight ends. So I think that really goes to what you're talking about. And when you look at the rest of Iowa's schedule, I, I just don't see a team. And, and right now in our league, you know, you've got three really good defensive fronts. Um, you know, Wisconsin is unique with the angling blitzing style of three, four defense. They run, I, I mean, where you can just sit back, drop seven guys, and because your front four can get pressure. There's three of those teams in our league, right? Well, four. Iowa's one of them. The other three are all in the other division and are not on Iowa's schedule. So uh, that's Michigan, Michigan and Ohio State. So I, I don't know the teams you're going to face the rest of the year. I, I don't know that they have the personnel to take that away. I still think the best shot is to try to bring pressure bring blitzes because you, you know, when you bring the blitz, you just bring that human factor in much more. And yeah, Nate Stanley's made a few um, poor decisions, uh, really bad decisions. The last couple of games didn't see the, the zone drop last week against Indiana. But then again, sometimes that's hard to see. That's why you, that's why you do a zone drop when you're showing blitz with the linebacker, you drop back guys mm-hmm. kind of get lost in the wash. That said, 
Nate Stanley, these are Big Ten only statistics, Steve. I mean, we all know that Dwayne Haskins is putting up, you know, Tech Mobile, PlayStation type numbers this year. Nate Stanley in Big Ten play is averaging four touchdown passes per game. So is Dwayne Haskins. Iowa in Big Ten play is averaging 9.4 yards per attempt, which is the tops in the Big Ten. Ohio State's averaging 9.3. The next nearest after that is Penn State at 8.1. And Iowa, Iowa has allowed just one sack per game. They played six games. They've allowed just one sack, which is pretty amazing considering how much more the passing game is being emphasized this year by Iowa. So they're 13th in the nation in sacks allowed. They're 14th in the nation in sacks. And Stanley's thrown for 14 touchdown passes over his last four games. It ties Chuck Long for the most in Iowa history over a similar stretch. And just a couple of weeks ago, after Iowa's 2-0 start, Stanley had one touchdown pass. He's got 14 since then. He's on pace to put a lot of distance between himself and Chuck Long and the all-time touchdown passes in a season number. And there was a lot of talk about him in the preseason, potentially getting some NFL looks. He made another Ben Roethlisberger-esque type escape and touchdown for this last week. He's really coming into his own as of late. And everything you just said is why he's the Walter Camp National Player of the Week. And when you look at Iowa's strength of schedule, because you, you know we're into the time of year now where we're at the midway point of the season, so I think this metric matters a lot more than it does in week two or three. You know, the latest uh, strength of schedule rankings in the Big Ten from Sagarin have Iowa with the one, two, three, four, fifth toughest schedule in the league, but the 26th toughest schedule in the country. And that's with an FCS team that's only three and three right now in northern Iowa. So you're, you're, you have a 500 FCS team on your schedule, and Sagarin still has your SOS at 26th in the country. And so those are that, that's some real competition that Nathan Stanley is putting those numbers up against. And I think a lot of it is because of the breaking of tendency. And, and Iowa is, is, is really um, cashing in right now on what we talked about a week or two ago, which is knowing the difference between stubbornness and persistence. That when you have a, uh, even if you're multiple, um, but when you have a pro-style attack, like Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, and Michigan State do, they're the kind of the last holdouts to that in our league. When you ha- even, even and, and there really aren't any pure pro-style attacks anymore in college football, but these are the closest, and, and, and all four of them still have multiple aspects to them. The, you you have to have play action be a benchmark uh, of your passing game. And uh, just because of the amount of, of, of balance and, as you like to call it, wash, you're going to bring in to the point of attack with the way you're lined up on, on a down-by-down basis most of the time. And so that mean, that requires at least some threat of a running game. So you can't ever really abandon it, you know. And so that's where you've got to learn what's the definition between persistence and stubbornness. And so far this year, I think Iowa's coaches have have mastered that distinction as good as any uh, I can remember in, in recent memory for the Hawkeyes. And I think you're right. I think I, I think a lot of it has to do with Brian Ferentz having the uh, aforementioned latitude that somebody else with a different last name wouldn't have with his father, Kirk. And I, I just and I've seen a lot of this on Hawkeye Twitter and I'm with them. 
It's like we've seen the future. We've seen what I think, given Iowa's illustrious history and ability to repetitively recruit and develop high-end NFL caliber tight end talent. I mean, they've had seven tight ends drafted, not counting the free agents who have made it during the Kirk Farah era. And going back, of course, to the 80s as well. Tight end and offensive line are about the two best bets for a professional track if you go play football at the University of Iowa. And really, those are two good tracks if you are of those positions and want to make it into the NFL to go there. When you know that you're going to repetitively find and develop people that can play at a high level with those positions, why wouldn't you do what Iowa's doing this year? Now, I'm not saying they're going to find a Fant and a Hawkinson every year, but they'll probably have one guy like you know TJ Hawkinson most years. I, I mean, right now, if you're going to draft one of those two, Steve, I'm curious what your take is going off on the side here. Which one of those would you draft? It probably depends on what you're looking for to tie it in at the next level. I think TJ Hawkins far and away, TJ Hawkinson's far and away the more complete of the duo. I think it totally. I, I think Hawkinson is what more of what Mike Mayock would call scheme versatile. Um, where I think if you're looking for more of a vertical tight end, uh, sort of what Eric Ebron, the former number one pick, is doing for the Colts this year. Um, uh, then Fant is is more of your guy, but you know I think Hawkinson has enough athleticism to play some of that role. If you want a guy that is going to have be responsible to be more of an inline guy on a forty to fifty percent snap count basis, uh, and then I think he's a much more as they like as the scouts like to call it willing blocker uh, than say Fant. But I, I think that really comes down to what you're looking for scheme wise. If the number one goal of your tight end. Uh, in, in your system uh, is in order to make teams in the NFL pay for playing uh, deep zone defense against the guys you have on the outside, then I, I think Fant has a, is your guy and is going to have, if he stays healthy, a right. really long career. He's, he's similar to, he reminds me of Josh Reed for the Redskins uh, who struggles to stay healthy, but has that kind of athleticism. Uh, but if you want more of your traditional Iowa, you know, Kittle uh, two way tight end that we've seen uh, the kid from PCM Monroe played for the Raiders for many years. His yeah, name escapes. yeah. If you're looking for more of that guy, Hawkinson is more in that traditional mo- mo- mode. But if you want a guy that's going to make teams pay for playing zone fan is an elite level talent at that next level, I think. So they, they've got these. I just think that this is your offense. As long as I just think this is your offense going forward, and uh, it's it's really pretty exciting because I just I I'm not going to say that Iowa is going to be you know a 35 point per game team going forward. I just think it makes them harder to defend. And what you and I talked about two weeks ago, getting that yeah. 20 points per game to 24 points per game on offense or 26 or 28 even. I mean, can you imagine if Iowa was consistently scoring 28 points a game with the type of defense they typically play? You go from your seven to eight win seasons and you start getting more into the nine, 10 more consistently. Wouldn't you agree? I agree completely. Uh, you know, and I mean, one of my frustrations, cause you know, I watch both of our teams similarly, cause we are running a lot of the similar stuff, especially on the, I mean, particularly on the offensive side, but one of my great frustrations with Michigan is, I mean, we've got a guy at tight end who's 6'8", 260, runs a 4'5", and we never throw him the ball in the red zone. I don't understand that at all. Like, I don't understand why we just don't Jimmy Graham him. 
just post him up at the goal line and throw it up to him, right? I mean, how hard is that? How hard is that? And I think sometimes you can get too smart by half and, and rather than just kind of keeping it simple, stupid. And, you know, when we talked two weeks ago during the bye, what did we say? If, I, if we were Iowa, we'd be doing self-scouting right now. When you've played eight out of your last 12 games against power five opponents and you've scored 21 points or less, that's just that margin for error. You're letting teams hang around and you're making it harder on yourself. You got to figure out where's that three to seven extra points you need going to come from. And what's happened here is that I think they've they've gone to more of the kind of attack that you've described throughout the course of this podcast. And and the result is from their self-scouting adjustments, the result is they've had back to back games of 30 points or more against power five teams. It's actually now 40, 40 points, points or more, more. on the road for the first teams. time ever in Big Ten play. Yes. Yeah. And the last time uh, that they scored 30 points or more in consecutive games against power five teams, they actually did it four games in a row in 2015, which was, of course, was a magical season. So um, I, I don't know if they were listening to our podcast, brother, but uh, I'm going to give us I'm a, you're welcome over there at uh, Fort Kinnick uh, for our expert analysis that we helped you guys with. I'm sure that's what Brian was doing in the bye week. No question about it. You got to look at it from all different angles. Fourth I'm sure he got up and said, let me find out what the Wolverine thinks, because I know yeah. he's going to know exactly yeah. what we need to do around here. Well, yeah. Brian, you're welcome. Yeah, Thank let's you. see what, what the Wolva clone has in mind. Um, four consecutive games over 400 yards of offense. First time I was done that since 2014. Um, just just a number of really good things. And, and this, you know, what's interesting, Steve, is uh, the, kind of the last thought here on this one is what I always had to do to mitigate the injuries on defense. So they basically came into this game down two of their starting linebackers, their two best linebackers already having to replace all three from a year ago this season and Jack mm-hmm. Hockaday and Nick Neiman. They did not play in this game. I was starting two cornerbacks and the two cornerbacks who started uh, the majority of the games until Iowa went to Minnesota. Neither of them played in that game. Iowa once again, starting two freshmen. So this is the second straight week that Amani Hooker basically played outside linebacker, nearly every snap snap of the game. That wasn't a, you know, a dime sub package. So given what is coming up on Iowa's schedule, uh, really a dearth of power runners, if you will, the rest of the way. And, I mean, you, when, when Neiman and Hockaday come back, you're certainly, you know, you're certainly going to want to welcome them back in. But, man, it's it's an interesting 4-2-5 look that I was really playing out of their base 4-3, but with Amani Hooker as a very versatile player there. I kind of think it bodes well going forward for this defense as well. I also think we need to, along the lines of what you just dis- discussed, complementary football is what the best teams play. And, and, and that means that you are able to frame the game with, with your various units in a way that gives you the best opportunity uh, to create the, 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 the conditions in the field of play most conducive and likely to end up with you having a victory. And, and for most years under Ference, you kind of knew what complementary football looked like. They needed to be able to run the ball. They needed to be able to stop the run, not beat themselves. And they're going to try to win every week against teams that had a pulse 21 to 17 or 24 to 20. And you and I have done that podcast a million times over the years. This year, it looks a little different. But I don't think it looks different because of what's on the offensive side. I think it looks different because of what's on the defensive side. And I go back to how high I was on this defensive front coming into this year. 
that I saw a level of versatility, depth, and um, athleticism that we haven't seen at Iowa in a long time. And when you can when you can get after the quarterback, I mean, what did Ant, what did Nelson have like three sacks in the first quarter, or whatever against Minnesota a couple yeah, weeks ago? Yeah, against Minnesota, right? When when you can get after the quarterback like that, you know, I, I go if if I were an, an Iowa fan. Go and watch the Michigan. Well, first of all, I, I think every Iowa fan in America watched the Michigan Wisconsin game because I heard from all of you, and you're welcome. Uh, but uh, um, if you if you if you look at what happened in that game, uh, when Michigan got up by two scores, because of because of the way now that the the depth and athleticism we have in our defensive front, where those guys now don't even have to worry, they don't care now if. Uh, you know, Jonathan Taylor's getting six, seven, eight yards a crack because he's doing that one minute at a time because you're only getting one snap off every 40 seconds. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. they're just going to let him have that. They're, they're, gonna, they're at the point now where they don't have to worry about that because they've got two scores to play with. So right now it's, okay, dude, we don't care how many yards Jonathan Taylor gets now. It's everybody at the quarterback. Right. And when you are doing and that, that's and that's what I think you're what you've seen happen the last two weeks with Iowa is because of their the, the way they have more increasingly mastered the difference between stubbornness and persistence. And they've unleashed the hounds at the right time. And they're and they're putting up bigger point totals now. What that does with your defensive front in the fourth quarter where those where you just tell those guys, dude, just I mean, meet at the quarterback. And that's where that's now where, you know. Instead of us beating Wisconsin 21 to 13, it's 38 to 13 because you're forcing pick sixes because the heat is on, as Glenn Fry used to say. And that's what Iowa's done the last couple of weeks. Where now, now you're not even, you didn't even find three to seven points and you didn't go from beating these teams 24 to 20 to beating them 28 to 20. But now it's, it's three, four score games because the, the, the pressure you can bring to bear in your front when the mystery is gone now and every time they run the ball, they're basically doing you a favor because you want to see the clock go down too, right? You know, so you're fine if they want to chew the clock, they can't afford to chew the clock, which means they've got to throw the ball more and you've got the athletes up front to be much more disruptive than what we've seen from most Iowa teams in the past that kind of had to scheme, scheme to pressure. And I think that's now where the definition of complimentary football for Iowa is a little different than what it's, it's been in the past too. Um, last thing, um, FPI, Iowa, uh, 13 from ESPN's FPI. It's funny how much I'm citing that this year since it's, uh, being kind to Iowa, uh, and another year saying it's worthless. Uh, <laughs> they have, Iowa at, yeah, they have Iowa with a 9.3, 3.0 projection, uh, the rest of the way, um, 2% chance of winning out, but they, I mean, uh, Penn state, well, we'll talk about that more in the next podcast. The Iowa, Iowa, Wisconsin. Obviously, Iowa has to be one game clear of Wisconsin. You, Iowa, I, I still think Iowa is going to need to win out in order to get to Indianapolis. Do you agree? I don't know. I don't know. Um, and, and the reason I don't know is because Wisconsin, I, I will be fascinated to see how they respond to what happened on Saturday night, John. It's the the worst regular season they've lost they've had since 08. Mm. Um, it's the first time in 33 Big Ten road games they've lost by more than seven points. Wow. 
it, the only two teams to beat them by more than 10 points in the last seven years went on to win the national championship that season, Alabama and Ohio State. That's incredible. Okay. So whether whether they're good or great, this is one of the most established, maybe the most established program in the league in terms of a branding identity standpoint. And and it's just tough to to get them out of their off their rhythm and off their game. And they came into this year, and I know that Jerry DiNardo and I are having a, a urination contest about his Jim Harbaugh butt hurt. Yeah, we'll talk about that in the next podcast. But I have been I have cited him affirmatively several times on our podcast, including, remember, what he said about Wisconsin when they were there for their uh, training camp tour and that he was concerned. Remember, we had we did a long conversation about this, that he was really concerned about the different vibe there. And he had he had just gotten there when Urban Meyer got suspended and Sports Illustrated put them on the cover and in the playoff. You know, the you know, Wisconsin has thrived by being the ultimate chip on the shoulder team. They've always been the other guys, you know, whether it was the other guys to Ohio State, Iowa, Michigan, Iowa, or just Ohio State, et cetera. This year, with them having the bullseye on their back, a lot of these guys did the whole we won the division and went thirteen and zero thing and the previous year they won they won they they did a New Year's six bowl and eleven and three. I really sense that this was kind of a playoff or bust year for them. And so I will be fascinated to see how they mentally respond the rest of the way, because that's totally out now. Um, you know, they have a bad non-conference loss to an okay, mediocre, but mediocre BYU team. And you get spanked like that, as Ohio State learned last year when it got spanked against Iowa. The voters just don't rem- – the committee just doesn't forget that when, you, when that's your second loss is a spanking like that. So the, the preseason deluge, you know, dreams of this is the year Wisconsin uh, takes the next step from great to elite, as James Franklin says, that's all out now. And I will be – I'll be fascinated to see how they recover from that. Uh, And we may find out that they just went out from here and recover just fine. We may find out that they may lose another couple of games, especially because one of their road games is at Penn State. And that's another team that all their goals are gone too. I mean, Saturday was that dream crusher. And I think we were wondering how the team was going to respond to James Franklin throwing them under the bus like that after the Ohio State loss, and I think we now have our answer. So um, I don't know mentally where either one of those two teams are, and obviously that's going to factor heavily into how how Iowa's season ultimately turns out here. So I wouldn't wouldn't be shocked if Wisconsin went out, and I wouldn't be shocked if they finished 8-4. and All right, that'll wrap up this installment of the HN Podcast. For Steve, I'm John. We'll talk to you soon.